welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 46. Great program this week. Really interesting guest. Very, um, I think, enlightening conversation we're going to have. But before we can get to that, let me make my usual pitch for Counterpunch. Um, I have asked. I have begged. I have even gone so far as to threaten. But today I will just remind, gently remind listeners of the value of Counterpunch the print magazine is a great way to support Counterpunch. It's an excellent magazine. Love getting it in the mail. Love having them sitting around. I've, I actually just the other day picked up an issue from like six months ago and was still enjoying it, reading through uh, the columns, looking at the artwork. I, I really love the, the magazine. I really think that it's a good way to support Counterpunch and get something out of it. So please do consider getting that print subscription. It really keeps uh, Counterpunch going and keeps Keeps Counterpunch as a place where you can go every morning and read stuff for free uh, from some of the top um, analysts and experts and and uh, you know writers on the left. So very few spaces we have like that, and I think it's worth preserving. Another thing you can do is support this show by um, giving us a positive review on iTunes, sending us around to your friends by email, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, who knows what other platforms people are using these days. So uh, please do that as well. I want Counterpunch Radio to reach as many people as possible, and I try my best to bring as many great guests on every week as I can, including this week. Uh, I am very happy to be able to introduce Jason Moore to the program. Uh, Jason is the author of an absolutely indispensable book, in my view, an indispensable new book called Capitalism in the Web of Life, Ecology and the accumulation of capital. This is from Verso Press. I believe it came out just a few months ago now. Um, uh, Well, I guess, was that late 2015, Jason? That's exactly right. Okay. So so it's been out now for about six, eight months or so. Got to get your hands on this book. Thank you so much, Jason Moore, for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you, Eric. It's a great honor to be on here. And I just wanted to uh, second everything you said about Counterpunch and how vital it is for the left as a beacon of sane and radical analysis. Thank you so much for that. Now, um, we have a lot to talk about, and it's I think some of the work that, that some of this book gets pretty complex, and I want people to have a chance to digest this information and hopefully uh, get enough out of this conversation where, well, quite frankly, they'll go out and buy copies of the book. So let us begin with a very basic uh, question. Um, tell us a little bit about this book and what you mean by the web of life. Why is it important to understand this concept and how it actually acts as a framework for this book? Well, that's a great question. And the book is really an effort to come to terms with capitalism, not only as a system of economic power, not only as a system of political power and of ecological domination, but also to think through the ways that we have learned to think about something called nature and to think about something called society. So when you say the word nature, people more or less know what you mean. They think about the birds and the bees and the soils and the forests and the climate and things like that. What I'm trying to do in this book is to say, wait a minute, we need to look at humans as a part of nature And that is, in a sense, very commonplace right now. 
But in another sense, it's very rare because we tend to think of things like Wall Street as part of society, not not uh, directly implicated in how nature works. Or we think about questions of work, of uh, what kinds of work do we have? Uh, is there enough work for people? Clearly there is not. Um, what are the politics of work and how do they relate to the bigger questions of the planet and of, of the biosphere. So what I've done in this book is to ask people to set aside this normal way of thinking about the world, which says, okay, there's nature, it's over on one side, that's uh, ecologies without human beings. And then over here on another side, we have a different box, and that's going to be called society. And that's about how humans relate pretty much independent of nature. And what I'm saying is that if we want to understand how capitalism has developed, when and where it emerged, because those are the questions that are absolutely crucial to understanding the devastating crises that we're living through today on a planetary scale, and of course in many particular regions, if we want to understand the problem today, we have to look at the origins, and then we have to look at how the beast this beast we call capitalism has evolved over time. And that's involved, that's involved not only brute force and violence and uh, industrialization and, and a lot of things that we would call economic, but it's also involved a powerful system of thought that I call, after Rene Descartes, Cartesian dualism. So basically, I use web of life because I am asking people to step outside of this box of nature over here on one side and society here on another side, and we can tease out the implications of this, but one of the things I say is that something like society, which we take as a very innocent term, in fact has been implicated in a very long history of colonialism and the devastation not only of landscapes but of genocidal practices with indigenous peoples all across the early modern, early modern era and well into the present. So we need to understand that, that these are not just analytical problems. It isn't just some academic quibbling about words, but these words, nature over on one side and society on another, have really shaped how the powerful have organized the world and uh, they've also shaped how we've contested it. So I guess um, an immediate uh, pushback against that from somebody who is critiquing you would be to say that, well, what is – there's nothing natural about colonialism. There's nothing natural about you know exploitation of surplus value or what have you. So uh, can, you, can you explain a little bit in what ways you mean these things are quote-unquote natural? Well, it points to the difficulty of the word nature, which is not only the most complex word in our language, as Raymond Williams once said, but also perhaps the most dangerous word in our language. So to say something is natural or unnatural, while it's true that many environmentalists have invoked that language, that is also a language that has been used often to great effect in the domination of peoples of color of women, of uh, 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 queers and uh, transgenders and on and on and on to, to identify uh, uh, and to put into practice systems of domination. So to describe the powerless or to describe the uh, uh, victims of colonial projects uh, and, and uh, indeed to characterize their responses as unnatural, as illogical, as unreasonable, and so on and so forth. There's a deep and powerful sense of which this word nature gets used. Now, in a lot of ways, my argument in this book is much simpler than that. It says simply, 
look at any so-called social process you want to. Let's look at industrialization or imperialism or uh, Wall Street or the city of London and financial markets. All of them are directly and indirectly premised on relations with the rest of the planet. And those relations are not simply footnotes. Those relations, uh, the relations of the climate, the relations of biodiversity, as we know, we're living through an era of mass extinction, the sixth mass extinction on the planet. Those, uh, uh, those kinds of questions or the, the capacity of world agriculture to continue to sustain revolutionary increases in, in productivity, these questions are all tied up with real physical natures of soil, of water, of uh, 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 mineral extraction and energy extraction, all of these things. So part of what I'm, I'm saying is, hey, if we want to really understand how something like colonialism works – or imperialism today, we need to look at how the social and cultural projects associated with imperialism are always bound up with real physical transformations and physical transformations not only of land, of soil, of, say, cities, but also of human bodies. And that capital really um, has a way and empires have a way of saying, well, some humans are part of society, but then there are a bunch of other humans that are really, they're savages, they're part of nature, they're not the same as us. And when they say they're not the same, of, the same as us, one of the, the most frequent characterizations is that they're somehow savage, somehow not human, not quite human. They're not really there. And so we need imperialism to properly train them in civilization. Yeah. And that, that has a long history. It goes back all the way to uh, the English uh, uh, intensifying their colonial rule over Ireland in the 1540s. It goes to the Spanish in colonial Peru. They had a special word for indigenous peoples. They called them naturales. So, again, we have this, this crazy, absurd system, capitalism, that constructs this separation and pretends as if there's a separation between nature on the one hand and society on the other, but is constantly uh, bending and uh, uh, deploying those ideas along with a set of very violent material practices against bodies. I mean, the ecocidal and genocidal uh, thrust of, of capitalist development can uh, never be underemphasized. So we need to see how these are all fitting together, both in the realm of ideas and in the realm of practice. And, and I think that that will provide some openings to rethinking political strategy in the present for radical movements. Yeah, it's really interesting the way that you frame up this, this uh, sort of examination. And it just comes to mind as well that on the one hand, you have an, uh, let's say, an imperialist outlook, as, as you were just describing. But at the, on the other hand, we also have this sort of um, knee-jerk reaction to that from many who consider themselves environmentalists and, uh, you know, activists uh, for indigenous rights and whatever, who immediately seem to fall into, I think, the trappings of, quote-unquote, the noble savage, right? Or the, well, the the less industrial, uh, uh, more indigenous groups are somehow more natural. And so that raises the question, is, quote-unquote, primitive society really natural? Or is that just a different form of the same kind of development, to use your words, in the web of life? I think so. I think humans 
are distinctive. And sometimes people say, well, Jason, you say humans are no different from the rest of nature. And it's true. Humans have a lot in common with the rest of nature and especially with a lot of mammals. But humans are also very distinctive in terms of our ability to uh, communicate with signs written in, in, in our, our oral languages and also to develop collective memories. Now, I think what I'm arguing in, in many ways intensifies or accentuates our ability to see what is specific about humans and to see also the specific patterns that are deeply oppressive and violent, as well as the specific patterns of cooperation that are tremendously hopeful. So for many indigenous peoples, and this is, of course, a crude generalization, the separation of nature society has never existed. And so in a way, it's a very curious argument to say, well, uh, and I don't really know how many indigenous movements are making this argument as opposed to, say, uh, environmentalists in the global north who are saying, well, the you know, native peoples are somehow closer to nature. And for many indigenous movements, as well as for the environmental justice movement in the United States, which is led overwhelmingly by peoples of color, uh, that movement really never drew a sharp distinction between the health and well-being of humans and the health of well-being and well-being of the environments in which they lived. And I think that's crucial, that one of the challenges that environmentalist movements have always faced, and they've been living in the midst of this, it's a contradiction. On the one hand, they want to preserve something they call the environment. On the other hand, most environmentalists are well aware that the that questions of so-called social justice and environmental justice are not separate, but completely integrated with each other. And so there's this, there's been this tendency to see nature or the environment as a sacred object. And I think whenever we get to the idea that our politics should protect or preserve a sacred object, I think we're in trouble. I think that that's uh, an interesting point as well. And I, I would just um, want to ask you a follow-up to that Um do you believe that the, let's say, big green, right, as Jeffrey Sinclair calls it, right, the 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 major environmental campaigns, the NGOs and the rest of them, do you think that they are actually environmental leaders or are they doing exactly the opposite of what you're doing? That is to say, they don't question the role of capitalism in the web of life, that in many ways they have they have sort of uh, sequestered nature and the environment as something separate and sacred, not to be integrated into a broader understanding and obviously from my perspective, an anti-capitalist understanding. I, I think you're right, Eric. I think that there's a an implicit and de facto endorsement of capitalism by the big-time environmental organizations. Now, that's not to say that the activists in those organizations uh, uh, don't do good work. Many of them do great work. Uh, and those organizations themselves, I think of the World Wildlife uh, uh, Fund and, and other uh, big-time environmental organizations, do very good environmental reporting and uh, uh, do underscore empirically the horrific toll of capitalist development on humans and the rest of nature. So we want to be careful not to tar them entirely. However, at their core is this idea of a sacred object, nature, that can either be protected or destroyed. Now, planet Earth will be here regardless of whether humans are here or not. I think what's really a question is how do we move from capitalism? And we do need to understand capitalism 
not merely as an economic system, not merely as a social system, but as a way of organizing nature. It's a grand project to reorganize nature. And of course, peasants, workers, many other humans are and always have been contesting that. And global nature itself is fighting capitalism in a way uh, as well, that we see all sorts of resistance to the long, really long, long history, going back to the age of Columbus, the history of domination and of, of, of trying to convert all of nature into a set of objects to be uh, uh, profitably put to work, that we, we have this moment at which it is, I believe, possible to genuinely put together the, the the issues of environmental and social justice. But to do that, we have to move beyond the idea that environment and society, environmental justice and social justice, environmental imperialism and social imperialism are separate. We have to see those as fundamentally unified. And I think that that is where many of the most promising and imaginative movements today are headed. I think that's where the best of the climate justice movement is going. I think that's where the best of food sovereignty and food justice movements are going. I think that it's implicit in many indigenous uh, political movements across Latin America and elsewhere. I totally agree with that. Now, I want to ask you another question. It comes up, um, it comes up repeatedly in, um, in your book, and this is the concept of what you call the double internality. Now, um, I, I want to just I have a couple of questions about it, but let me just start by with the basic question of what does double internality mean as you use it in this book? That's a fantastic question. And as I see in the book, I hate words that end with ITY, globality, all the environmentality, who <laughs> needs it? Academics do this all the time. And I think I confess to this in the book. Look, I couldn't figure out a better way to say it. But just like the web of life asks us to stand outside the normal nature plus society way of thinking in the world, the double internality says something very simple. It says, okay, if you want to look at something like imperialism, you have to understand that nature is inside it. So nature is internal to imperialism. At the same time, we have to understand that particular empire, say American imperialism and its projects to uh, control and dominate the Middle East today, that project unfolds within a broader set of relationships that are the web of life and that it cannot control. So on the one hand, these big processes and projects of the modern world, empire is one, industrialization, financialization, these, these are some of the major uh, elements of, of the modern world. These are always really trying to construct nature. But at the same time, n nature as a whole is, is always limiting and constraining and frustrating those projects. So it means we need to think at every turn that what we do with each other, like what you and I are doing right now, Eric, is not some, something that happens in a social bubble. It depends on a gigantic energy infrastructure, a gigantic infrastructure of production of factory workers in China and elsewhere. It depends on the, the global information network, which is a physical infrastructure. And so we need to look at how... Our interactions, our relations from the most intimate to the largest processes of global production and power are always intimately tied up with and within the web of life. 
No doubt. Now I can I can hear the uh, just barely audible screams of Marxists everywhere asking the question: How is it any different than dialectics? How is it different than a dialectical relationship, Jason? It is a dialectical relationship. That's exactly what it is. In fact, uh, I borrowed and found inspiration in a huge number of Marxists, especially Marx, but I would say also in a more contemporary frame, wonderful, brilliant scholars like Richard Levins and Richard Lewinton, the, the, the great geneticists, uh, Bertel Ullman, the great political philosopher who really gave us the modern, that is since the 1970s, idea of what he calls the philosophy of internal relations. And so uh, that's precisely what I'm doing. And that's, that's how my own approach differs from some other holists. Uh, Fritjof Capra, the great physicist, is a great, uh, would be a great example. That for Capra, there's a web of life, and he did a lot that's very significant about deepening our understanding of that. And he wasn't quite yet willing to extend that dialectical imagination to questions of capitalism. And so what this does, what, what dialectics have too long done in, in Marxist thought is to keep it within this box that we call society. Now, I don't think Marx did that. And Marx, I'm not going to go off on this big, you know, why Marx was right about everything, because I don't think he was. But he had a very, very powerful way of describing work. And for me, a politics of nature without work is going to be absolutely suicidal for any radical project. We need to have work at the center. So Marx has an amazing page where he starts to talk about the work process, the labor process. And it's the first page of the chapter. And he says, work or the labor process is, first of all, a relationship between humans and the rest of nature. So there's a relation that that evolves and transforms of work. There is a relationship that transforms external nature. And he says, well, in transforming external nature, we transform ourselves. And if you look at that statement, that's a triple transformation of humans, of the human doing the work, of the natures outside of humans, and of the relations between humans and between humans and the rest of nature. So we have these, these, tra- these relations that are really at the center. And part of the problem of a lot of environmentalist thinking and the Anthropocene argument today, Anthropocene, Age of Man argument is a great example of this, is it tends to, it tends to get rid of those relations, those dialectical relations, say, of capital and labor, of empire and colony, of town and country. And in its place, it puts things like urbanization and population and industrialization. It puts these kind of big uh, uh, processes that seemingly have no relations that drive them. They're just there. And, and in fact, even a lot of radical environmentalist thought thinks, well, the problem is industrialization. And I say, well, Yes, that is indeed part of the problem, but we have to understand that the Industrial Revolution occurred because there was a capitalist system that nurtured it and that encouraged it and that uh, cleared the lands of peasants, that exterminated uh, uh, indigenous peoples, that imported African Africans to be slaves on the sugar plantations and then sent their money into England to uh, uh, build the, the uh, textile mills of Manchester. And so we have to see this this big web of relationships. So yes, absolutely, it is always, always, always dialectical. All right. Um, before we before we head to break, I just want to ask one additional follow up to that. And I just 
it's not necessarily so much, um, you know, for my own edification, but I want to get this out there because I know we have a lot of people listening who are environmentalists in various ways and who do come from an anti-capitalist perspective. And I just want to put this question very generally to you. How does the critique that you're offering and the substance of your argument as it pertains to the double internality, how does that uh, differ from what we might consider the more traditional anti-capitalist critique. I mean, obviously we have critiques against industrialization. We have various other uh, critiques from environmentalists, but I don't get the sense that that's really what your argument is. I get the feeling that you're really putting forward something that is really kind of unique in this uh, space. I would say two things, and I wouldn't say I would say that my alternative or my perspective is not so much entirely new as in fact drawing on uh, decades of work in many cases of radical environmentalists, radical feminists, and labor activists. Those are the movements that I have been most directly inspired by. And I'm not saying that I've, I've done justice to all of their insights, but I would say two things, that we need to have a radical politics that owns the jobs versus environment problem. So we need to look beyond the, really the, this nature society binary where you have environmentalists struggling to uh, preserve the planetary conditions of life. And then you have workers struggling for a decent wage, for a living wage. We need to look to transcend those to see that they are both fundamentally implicated in each other. Now, there's another dimension of work that I highlight in the book and that I've, I, I make no claims for political innovation on this, but I think that it brings together something quite crucial. It is that capitalism is not merely a market system. It's not merely a commodity system. It is also a system of power through which commodity relations, market relations, exist in relation to what I call unpaid work. And it relates to, it relies on, that, that system of market exchange that we all call the economy relies on, a, on an extraordinary amount of unpaid work uh, by humans, primarily domestic labor, but also care work and other forms of, of socially reproductive work, and then also what is called, and I think it's a funny term, ecosystem services, but the work of nature, of extra human natures. And that relates to our politics as well, because as we know today in the United States, especially the, the flashpoints of the class struggle are not so much in the old manufacturing zones, although those remain important, but in areas of social reproduction, like education, healthcare, care work, uh, and things like that. So we need to find ways, not just to find common ground, but we need to be willing to look at the kinds of sacred objects. And I think that that have informed our politics of the environment on the one hand, but I think also a, a certain kind of economism of economic uh, justice. And, and so this is not an argument saying they're wrong. This is an argument quite the contrary. It's saying They've, these movements have basically posed the question intellectually uh, as well as politically of how do we put these together and what kind of new synthesis – we talked about dialectics, Eric – what kind of new synthesis do we need? So the opening line of the book is this book is an invitation to conversation, and that's the kind of conversation that we need so much right now. 
I totally agree with that. All right, let's take a break. Uh, we'll continue the conversation right there on the other side of the break. Again, the book, it's its its really a must read. I mean, I, I say that, but I really do mean that. I think it, it, it really provokes a lot of thinking, certainly did for me. Capitalism in the Web of Life, Ecology and the Accumulation of Capital by Jason Moore. This comes from Verso Press 2015. Get yourself a copy of that. Stick with us. We'll be right back. She was born in a school bus on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Her parents had driven from the San Francisco Bay. It was late December of 1968, and the skies were filling with the darkness of hate. Bobby and Martin were long gone. The flower children were singing. Very last song. Nixon was heading to that big white house, and the bombs would soon be dropping on the children of Laos. But a beautiful little girl was born on Christmas Day, away from the madness that had driven them astray. Sparkle right there in her eyes And it shined through the night And it filled up the sky She was raised by hippies In the hills of Tennessee Raised by hippies So wild and so free Raised by hippies To build her up of love Look into the skies In the heavens They didn't know what to do Eyes out to Argyles Made her feel strange She missed the hippie children With earth and nature names Now all the boys fell in love with her On the first day of spring She went to class with no shoes on her feet But her teachers Counterpunch Radio. Um, I plugged it right before the break, but let me plug it again. Um, not that this is <laughs> on the radio. It's not like you're listening from the middle of it, but whatever. Capitalism in the Web of Life, Ecology and the Accumulation of Capital by Jason Moore from Verso Press. Very important book. Um, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about dialectics. We were talking a little bit about this concept of the double internality. And so I want to ask you this because it, it 
in in a sense it sort of ties in. You already mentioned the phrase Cartesian dualism, and I want to ask you what exactly you mean when you say that uh, in the book that we need to get beyond what you call these dualisms. So what do you mean by the Cartesian dualism or dualism in general, and uh, in what ways have many others not gotten beyond that yet? That's a great question. So Cartesian dualism comes after the French philosopher Descartes. Now, it so happens that Descartes wrote most of his major works in the Dutch Republic, which was what Marx called the model capitalist nation of the 17th century. So uh, the relation between ideas and capitalist development and, and imperial power are always quite close, and it's important to understand how they all connect. The basic gist of the idea is what I've laid out earlier, which is that, oh, here's society over on one hand, and here's nature on the other hand, and they interact, but they don't really form each other or co-produce each other in a more dynamic way. So it's more um, that they interact like billiard balls or like a ping pong match. And so a dialectical procedure would go much deeper. Now, this may sound quite abstract, and in some ways it it, it very much is to some of your listeners. What I would say is that it has quite powerful implications for how we think of capitalist development and how we think of the crisis or crises today. So I'm struck. I've been in dialogue for many years with John Bellamy Foster, the editor of Monthly Review, who's done pioneering and groundbreaking work in thinking through the relations between Marx and capitalism and, and nature. Uh, and like all scholars, there is a, uh, there's a gap in, in his thinking, which is that he says capitalism will continue until the last tree is cut. Well, that's a kind of curious uh, statement. And it's a, it's a statement that makes sense if you think of capitalism as somehow outside of nature and then going in and uh, uh, just destroying nature, whatever that might be. And to be clear, I do think capitalism does horrific and terrible things to nature as in, and especially to humans, uh, but to all forms of nature. And I mentioned the sixth extinction, which I think is really better called uh, uh, not a mass extinction, but a mass extermination. So I do, I do think that uh, uh, capitalism does quite terrible things to the planet. One of the things that I did in the book is uh, – that I was quite mindful of the, the groundbreaking work of people like Bellamy Foster and many other radical environmental thinkers. And I looked at it and I said, well, what's really the one big part that's missing? What does overcoming this separation, this dualism, and dualism is always a separation. It's not a distinction. So uh, uh, we need to keep that in mind. The distinctions come out of dialectics like capital and labor. And when we say that, we mean that they're both related with each other. So, uh, and that the transformations of workers and the transformation of capitalists occur uh, in relation to each other, as opposed to a dualism, which says they interact, but they're not really intimately related in that way. Well, the big thing that's been missing on the left is a theory of how nature really matters to capital accumulation or to the processes of economic boom and bust. 
So that's a big part of the book. And that's one of the, the, the crucial lacunae uh, on the left. You can look at, especially since 2008, there have been some really extraordinary books on the global slump, uh, just to name David McNally's wonderful book. And then there have been a lot of great books on the planetary crisis, uh, Naomi Klein and many others we could probably name. But there hasn't been an effort to say, look, capitalism works in this particular way that depends on consuming natures at every turn and that capitalist development, the processes of investment and economic boom and economic crisis and financial crisis and all the rest of it, that these are in fact quite intimately tied to the transformation of nature as a whole. And so in that sense, I talk about the rise and fall of cheap nature. Cheap nature not as a thing, but as a strategy to make living relations or in some cases, geological relations, but living relations of nature to convert those into objects to do work for capital for very free or low cost. So cheap nature is not a thing, but it's a strategy. And what I chart in the book is that every great era of economic expansion, you can think of the post-World War II golden age, but many golden ages before that as well, that every great era of economic expansion rested upon a set of imperial and scientific and technological transformations to reproduce nature as cheap, as cheaply as possible. So think of the discovery of oil or before that of coal. There was an extraordinary deposit of the work of living creatures from millions of years ago uh, that, that capital could essentially take for free or very low cost and put to work to continue to advance the rate of profit and to accumulate this, these huge piles of money on the table. What do we see today? Those huge piles of money on the table continue to stack up and up and up. Why? Because cheap natures are harder and harder and harder to produce, not least because of the oppositions of humans in new social movements, but also in the form of, say, super weeds in agriculture or uh, other forms of, of exhaustion that go beyond this idea that we're just sucking the earth dry. But let me ask you this question then. What's, what are you really pointing to when you say that we, uh, as you know, humanity, have reached an end of the era of cheapness? I mean, what's to say, for instance, you know, there were probably people who were saying you know, 50 years ago, well, we've reached the end of the era of oil, and now the, the, the path forward for the world is nuclear power. And then, of course, we see the disastrous implications that nuclear power really has here uh, today. I'm, I'm speaking from New York City, just a, just a few miles from Indian Point, which threatens us all. Um, so what are you pointing to, to to justify your argument that we've reached the end of the era of cheapness? Well, I pose it as an open question. And my own conclusion has been we are indeed at the era of the end of cheap nature. But I also pose it as an open question that there are two major kinds of crises that we've seen really since the end of feudalism. One was feudalism's epical crisis. So it was a crisis not of absolute depletion, but that feudalism could no longer reproduce itself, its, its ways of power, its ways of organizing nature, its ways of organizing production. So that was an epical crisis. But then over the course of capitalism, we've seen developmental crises. So these big fundamental crises of organizing power, nature and capital within the overall 
system of capitalism. One was at the end of the 18th century. This was an era of, of uh, uh, great democratic revolutions in Haiti and the United States and France. It was an era of peasant revolts. It was also an era of unprecedented primitive accumulation and removing peasants from the land. It was an era of uh, technological advance in the, uh, in the form of what we call the Industrial Revolution. So it was a profound era of crisis understood as a turning point, uh, uh, an era of danger, but also an era of opportunity for capital. Where are we today? Well, some problems may indeed be fixable. So you mentioned nuclear power, and I think today it is probably technologically feasible uh, to solarize the world economy. Okay, well, where's the investment going to come from? We haven't seen that come up yet. The International Energy Agency, which is basically the think tank for the uh, uh, rich uh, nations of the world, says, well, we need about $55 trillion in new investment. Well, not even 10% of that seems to be forthcoming in solar and other alternatives. So we have to pay attention not just to, and I think this is really at the heart of the argument about limits in my book, is that the limits aren't just somehow out there in the biosphere. Uh, although in some ultimate way, of course, they are. But then in terms of how it's actually going to work out over the next 10, 20, 30 years, we have to look at the behavior of these big, big actors of institutional complexes like Wall Street and the behavior of financial capitalists, of the, the behavior of the biggest states in the world. Do we see signs that there is going to be a rapid polarization or move to alternative energy? We haven't seen that yet. Now, on other questions, it's not at all clear that there's any kind of fix. So in the 1970s, and you hinted at this, there was the limits to growth argument, which was a kind of neo-Malthusian argument that just emphasized resource scarcity. And I don't emphasize, I say resource scarcity is part of the issue, but not the whole issue. So I don't say limits to growth arguments are wrong, only that they're partial. But that in that era, that was still an era when the great productivity advances of green revolution of green revolution agriculture were possible. Uh, so in South Asia, in other places around the world, even in the United States, industrial agriculture continued to see rather robust productivity growth until about the middle of the 1980s. Now, why is that important? Not for the usual hunger discussion, because as we know, there's plenty of food to feed everyone in the world. But that capitalism depends on producing more and more calories with less and less labor in order to feed cheaply a world working class that continues to grow. And so here is one of the things that the dialogue in, in, in capitalism and the web of life lets us see. It lets us make a connection between agriculture and of course, agriculture will be fundamental to any progressive response to climate change. And so it lets us see these links between agriculture, climate change, but also, say, the expansion of the world's working classes in places like China or uh, South and Southeast Asia and what's happening there and how all of these issues feed into each other. And so I talk about how work and the end of cheap work is, in fact, a an ecological problem as well. That's a problem of how our planet is going to uh, uh, go to hell in a handbasket or uh, uh, really find a new way forward. And, and ultimately, it will come down to the capacity of working people to radically uh, uh, transform our relations, not just of economy, not just of society, but our whole way of relating with the planet as a whole. 
So you mentioned what's my difference with the older socialisms. Um, Sometimes not a lot, sometimes more than a lot. If we look at the history of socialist movements, say before World War II, there was a powerful economistic argument where mostly white men said, well, we need to get economic socialism first, and then the demands of of, uh, the colonial world or of women uh, can be satisfied after that. And I think now we're at the point where we need to understand that that human beings are living in a a quite fragile uh, planet in many ways. And that we can no longer afford to draw lines between human liberation and the emancipation of all life. And we can no longer wait to engage in that conversation amongst ourselves of what that might mean practically as well as philosophically. Yeah, very interesting. I agree with that. Um, I want to just return very quickly to this question of dualism um, in a slightly different context before we before we move on from there. And that has to do with the manifestation of what you're calling dualism in the contemporary political space of the left, because I just I when I was reading the book and I was reading about your arguments uh, in regard to dualism, I couldn't help but think of you know the the what I consider to be a crisis of the modern left specifically you know what and well, let me just pose it as a question to you. Do you think that um, things like identity politics and some of the other issues that we see that hamper our organizing on the left? Let me let me back up from that. I don't think identity politics are all negative, so I don't mean to say it that way. Right, right. Let me let me let me rephrase what I'm saying. Is a dualistic approach to political organizing something that we see as an obstacle on the left? I think I think so, and and when we say identity politics, it's never clear what we mean because, of course, uh, if we look at American history just since the end of World War II, it's clearly African Americans, women, many other peoples of color, and colonized peoples who really led the way towards a, a more radical critique Absolutely. of capitalism. Absolutely, uh, and and so. Uh, then, of course, we have the, the kind of the the highest stage of identity politics, say, with Hillary Clinton's presumptive nomination that we must support her because she's a woman. And uh, uh, we saw some version of that um, with Obama, of course, both uh, in distinctive but many common ways, uh, uh, really horrific imperialists, oh, yeah. um, just uh, just, to, you know, for starters, never mind all the rest. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so. Uh, it's it's I mean, it's the age old question. How do we how do we begin a discussion of a kind of universalist project that is respective of difference and that flows through difference without making a fetish of those differences and without making a fetish of the universalism either? Yeah. And I think on the left, I I think that's really been a discussion that's been almost entirely limited to discussions of human universalism. But I think what what I would say is that an emancipatory project that starts drawing lines around who gets liberation, who gets liberation, who gets equality and who doesn't, that's going to be a huge obstacle. So how do we how do we advance um, I mean, this is an academic term these days, but what's called a multi-species perspective that is still rooted in work and in class, 
but is not a reductive sense of work or class. It's not just the old white male industrial worker. It is the care worker. It is uh, all the women, principally women, doing uh, the domestic uh, work of raising children and uh, um, safeguarding communities and, and all of that. How do we put a diversity of forms of work at the center in a way that's not just a, uh, not just eclectic, not just, well, you know, everything goes. Yeah. And I think central to that is understanding something that for me was really the last huge piece of the book. I, I had to figure it out. I didn't know I was figuring it out until I, I, I put it together, which is that, that every act of economic exploitation, so of the factory worker, of the office worker, of the fast food worker, depends on an even greater act of appropriating the work of uh, what Maria Mies, a great uh, uh, Austrian Marxist, called the appropriation of women, nature, and colonies. So we need, and 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 the thing about that, Eric, is that the way that dualism works, this nature society dualism works, is that it makes invisible a lot of those forms of unpaid work, not just the work, say, of of horses or cows. Um, all of us who like eating a hamburger. That you know, it becomes invisible, but also the invisible work, say, of of a lot of farm work, uh, of uh, um, and of a lot of uh, domestic work of raising children. It makes those kinds of work invisible. And the last point I would make: we talk about cheap natures, and I do mean it in a in a fairly conventional Marxist sense of average labor time and trying to trying to draw that down in any given commodity. It is an argument about what Marxists have always called the law of value, a term that I hate. But it's also an argument about cheapening in that other sense of the word to 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 remove or lessen the dignity and respect of the work of uh, uh, women, of peoples of color, of other people who have been slotted into these uh, places in the labor market that are um, really, really designed uh, uh, and treated as if they are uh, less than visible and less worthy of respect. So I think of the Justice for Janitors movement, the famous movement in, in Southern California, especially in the 1980s and 90s. You know, that was a claim to say this work is fundamentally one of dignity or Martin Luther King with the Memphis uh, uh, sanitation workers on strike in 1968, that we need a politic. You see what I'm saying? That, uh, that the politics of work that, that is limited to humans, it, it tends to end up with a very narrow idea of work and a very narrow idea of politics. And I think that that speaks to the issue of identity because an issue of identity politics that is absent to politics of work is going to be an obstacle. Well, and I think also the question is, and, and not to be reductive about it, but it really does boil down to uh, – the question of the individual versus the collective and, and, and the real, you know, the, what I would consider to be the false, uh, dichotomy or the false dialectic or whatever, uh, between say the traditional Marxist who says, you know, we don't want to talk about anything about identity politics. We don't want to talk about race. We don't want to talk about gender. We don't want to talk about sexual, you know, orientation or anything like that. We solely want to talk about class versus those who say, oh, well, everybody who talks about class completely erases all of our differences and totally marginalizes, you know, this group or that group or whatever. 
whatever. And to me, taking one side or the other side, this is the sort of dualistic uh, narrative that we see so often on the left. And I find it to be incredibly harmful and and having a real, really uh, deleterious effect on our ability to organize. And so as I was reading the book, I couldn't help but think to myself, well, this is kind of what he's talking about. It is trying to see these issues and these dichotomies not as mutually exclusive, but as interrelated, one inside of the other simultaneously. You've said it perfectly. And this is about really overriding and transcending this Cartesian logic of either or. And that was re- that's really Western rationality. It's either or. And capitalist rationality is a rationality of fragments. So when we celebrate fragmentation, that is embedded in a long history of capitalist development. We need a rationality. We need a rationality that is premised on both and. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, now, we're running out of time, and there's one other major subject that, that comes up in the book, and it is really, I think, one of the touchstones for the book, and I, I definitely want to not, not give it short shrift, and that is um, what you call... Uh, let's see. How how do we how do we define the what you call the oikeos? Oikos? Oikeos, yeah. 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 The oikeos. Okay, so obviously it's a Greek term. It uh, really figures quite centrally in your book. So tell us what the oikeos is and what it is that uh, you feel is important about that in the context of the web of life. The oikos is a way of naming the relation of life making that is it is generative it is creative it is multi-layered and it produces species and environments and the species make environments and the environments make species and the environments are often made up of many many different kinds of species and bodies this is an ecosystem concept but the ecosystem that term names a boundary and names an object, like the web of life is basically a way of talking about nature as a whole. The oikos is a way of naming that relation of life making. And that's important because it puts these, uh, the, the life activity uh, and the relations of multiple life activities into play. So that's important because dialectically speaking, Speaking, if we think of Marx, Marx has a concept of value in which we have a certain relation between use value and exchange value that is mediated by a relation in the middle called value. That is the relations of, of, of power and of, of capital and labor and all the rest of it that's not reducible to the endpoint. So usually in how we think about the world, we think about the endpoints, nature and society, uh, core and periphery, uh, colonizer and colonized, without naming the relations that are in the middle of those. And that's an old Cartesian move to convert relations into objects. Well, we need to keep the relations at the center. And so it... it it becomes a way of saying that whatever we do as humans, we are passing through this relation. We are living through, we are working through, we are doing our politics through this relation of life making. And I suppose that that's a bit metaphysical, but I think that there's something very powerful to it. And I think that we can see it at play all over the place that, that as Marx reminds us that in transforming the external world, we are not just, 
transforming, say, a landscape, say, a forest into a wheat farm. In doing that, we are also transforming the relations between humans, the ideas of what is good nature and bad nature, and the relations with a, a, a diverse set of living creatures and microorganisms in the soils and uh, the animals that we need to make that farm work, that we need to understand those webs of relations. And they are diverse and they are uh, not always the same. But there is a, a pulse of life making that I think merits respect. And I think that that might open up a different way of thinking about the liberation of humans and the rest of nature, of environmental and human sustainability, that's a bit different than trying to protect a sacred object called the environment, like a singular environment that's just there. But nature is never there, just there. It is always actively made by humans, but by lots of other species as well. And that same web of life is always actively making us. So capitalism is not only a producer of nature, but is a product of it. And the Oikos lets us see that, that whatever humans might think, you know, have, having this conceit that we can control or dominate this thing called nature, which, by the way, is, is hooked up with ideas of controlling and dominating women and peoples of color and colonized peoples and all the rest of it, that instead of that, if our, if our point of departure is life-making, that's not an object that can be preserved. That's only a relation that can be respected or disrespected. So in other words, if I understand correctly, the oikos is not something that is necessarily specific to capitalism. It is it is something that is inherent in, in, in human uh, existence, but rather that it has its expression, as we understand it today, in capitalism, in capitalist reproduction. And that's exactly right. And cap capitalism has had, a, has, has had a very strange relation with the oikos because what it wants to do at every single turn is to bring it into parts and then relate to those parts instead of allowing those parts to fit to each other. So uh, uh, the technologies of, of recombinant DNA and uh, uh, genetic manipulation, you know, we can take a gene out of a fish and put it into a tomato. That's a perfect example of let's view the oikos as something that we can uh, uh, fragment and then profit from the fragmenting. I think a different way would be saying and asking the question, well, how could we respect the oikos in which humans are a part? So humans are clearly a part of it. It's not about seeing something outside us. Um, but what would, what would the politics of respecting the reproduction of life on this planet look like? And clearly that's very different from how capital looks at the world, which is how does capital, uh, uh, how do we go about uh, organizing the oikos to value the reproduction of capital? And those are fundamentally uh, opposed vision. They're they are diametrically opposed visions. And I think that, that that can open up more possibilities for building, building real political movements, real political coalitions against uh, against the grain of long-held divides, uh, jobs versus environment is just one um, that can really help us move forward to pinpoint that capital is a threat to us all, to our very conditions of existence. Absolutely. Well, as we come to a close here, I, I just want to quickly um, pull one one brief 
excerpt here and then ask a question. You write, this is actually in the introduction, I believe. Uh, you write, uh, I asked the reader to consider capitalism as a world ecology, joining the accumulation of capital, the pursuit of power, and the co-production of nature in a dialectical unity. Now, that's sort of what we've already been talking about, but I want to probe a little bit. What does, the, from from Jason Moore's perspective, what does understanding capitalism as a world ecology and understanding the web of life, how does this translate into our everyday political work? In other words, you talked about work and the importance of recognizing work and the political work that we do uh, around many of these issues and around imperialism generally and environmentalism generally. How does your argument that you're putting forward inform uh, our practice as political actors? and organizers? That's a great question. World ecology, which for listeners, uh, I will emphasize, has a hyphen in it for reasons I spell out in the book. It's not about the ecology of the world, but it's about understanding that every so-called economic moment, every movement of Wall Street is tied up with relations of power. Now, we know this very well from the past 40 years that it's been backed uh, uh, 100% and more by the American empire, uh, but that it's also a way of organizing nature. It's an ecological project as well. And that each of those moments are connected with each other. And so I think that practically means that we look at the possibilities of building alliances, especially between what we might call, for lack of a better term, economic justice movements and environmental justice movements. And then to also, I think, to translate that into political strategies, not just protest movements, but political strategies that take seriously the role of the state and what the state can do. And as we know, we are headed rapidly into an era of, I think, unprecedented, at least in human experience, environmental catastrophes uh, and all the rest. And my colleague, uh, I've learned a lot from my colleague, Christian Parenti, who really uh, points out, look, the state's going to be in the middle of this no matter what, that the left can't just do this in a horizontalist way, that we are going to need the, the big institutional power of states who have always been active in making environments. I mean, look at American history with canals and railroads and, and superhighways and all the rest of it, that the state is going to be there absolutely always. We cannot abstract that political question. Now, in the book, the state is not uh, uh, at the center of the analysis, in part because I'm aware of, of uh, pioneering work by Parenti and, and others who are really pushing out this argument. Um, and so what world ecology does, it's not a theory. It's not a theory of everything. It's a perspective that says questions of power of the state and other forms of power uh, are always related to capital and nature and vice versa. Now, one final point is this relation between what I call or what is conventionally called exploitation, say, in the production process. So in a Marxist sense, the uh, capitalist uh, employs the worker and then uh, uh, gets a, a return uh, bigger than the wages invested in that, that worker uh, uh, in action. That's one part of it. But the other part of it is what they call the dynamics of appropriation. And those always use extra economic powers, the powers of science, the powers of property, the powers of, of, of sometimes brute force, to, and the powers of racialized, uh, sexualized, gendered domination to essentially get more 
more cheap work from those dominated peoples, those uh, uh, oppressed uh, groups to set to work. So we need to have a politics that takes seriously those kind of classic class politics, but also the politics of, of domination and power in the appropriation of what they call unpaid work and not just the unpaid work of humans, although that, of course, is, is hugely important. So what I'm saying here is that world ecology gives us a way to pursue these questions in conversations. It's not a search for the Holy Grail. It's a search for socially and politically relevant uh, analytics and politics that can see what I think is right before our eyes, which I think most environmentalists and other people recognize, which is that the power, capital, and nature are always connected to each other fundamentally. So that is what I would emphasize in the world ecology conversation. And I would emphasize that it's not just me. In fact, many of the formulations in these books are deeply indebted to a growing community of scholars around world ecology. Yeah. Now, I, I just want to add, though, that I think that part of the work that needs to be done as far as – and by the way, I totally agree as far as the coming catastrophes that we're looking at, climate catastrophe, potentially a world war catastrophe given the uh, Hillary Clinton slash Donald Trump uh, fiasco, uh, given the constant um, you know uh, difficulty as far as the global economic system and many well respected economists who are talking about potential collapse here in the not too distant future given the conditions we're seeing in my view where your book really fits in as far as the uh activism and when i say activism i don't mean just going to protests and holding signs i mean really doing the work of building alternatives to the current system that's where i think that your book and your arguments really have uh, a, a real traction for people who are doing that work so for instance if you think of the global architecture of the of the economy, quote unquote, you know the the system by which you know goods are produced and distributed, by which inequalities are created, by which you know inefficiencies in capitalist distribution are seen. If you look at that economic system in total, you see that it is unsustainable. So there's two questions: Do you then proclaim from the mountaintops that it's unsustainable? Well, fine. Or do you begin to build some kind of an alternative? And that, to me, is where uh, human ingenuity and activism and uh, politics really, I think, in injects itself into the web of life and modifies the web of life. So just one example, you mentioned you mentioned solar, right? The creation of resilient communities, ones that are much more uh, uh, adaptable to changing climate conditions, to changing physical geography, to changing conditions economically. For instance, community-controlled broadband that cuts out Verizon, that cuts out AT&T, community-controlled commodity production that cuts out Walmart and the big box retail companies. This sort of alternative economic, political, and social, and ecological infrastructure, that to me is the real heavy lifting for activism in the 21st century. I think that's absolutely right, and that all of those transformations and movements you, you indicate need to be linked up to political demands on the state to support all of those projects. And to see that that is going to be a fundamental element of a progressive radical response to climate disaster. There's no doubt about it. Look, I, I've said it on this program before. I'll just, I, you know, 
there are a lot of lot of people who are in my of my generation in my age group now who are beginning to have families who are really beginning to build lives for themselves and they're doing it at a time of great peril in my view and I say they but I include myself in that group of people so for for people like me who are you know in their 30s who are starting families and whatever, you have to really grapple with this question of what are you building? What kind of a society are you going to see 30 years from now that you are invariably going to be a part of? And then how do we inject real solutions, pragmatic solutions that address the fundamental needs of, of the most uh, um, you know precarious peoples on this planet? How are you going to do that given all of these crises? And absolutely, Eric. And to advance, you mentioned starting families. My son, Malcolm, is six years old. I dedicate the book to him. And we need to be aware that our politics need to be intergenerational. We need to have a politics of intergenerational justice because, and I think this is becoming quite clearly uh, uh, evident today, capitalism is not only a system of extermination, but really a system of intergenerational mass murder. Yep. And I can't think I, I, I can't think of and don't want to think of a more polite way to say that because I think it should make us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to say that 30 years from now, what kind of planet are we going to live on in all the ways that and uh, that I talk about in the book of power of, of production and reproduction of the web of life and and much more than that, too. So. How are we going to start to build that today? And I think that that in highlighting the alternatives, you are absolutely correct. And then how do we build up those movements, the connections, the the web of connections, if you will, with labor movements, with other movements to make real demands on the political process and on the state? Absolutely right. I, I, I totally agree. All right, we'll have to leave it there, unfortunately. The book, an absolute must-read, Capitalism in the Web of Life, Ecology and the Accumulation of Capital, from Jason Moore. This is from Verso Press. Um, Jason, I don't know, do you want to tell people where they can follow your work, how they can get in touch with you, and uh, anything that you want to add? Thank you very much, Eric. It's been an honor. I'm very easy to find. You can find me at jasonwmore.com, one word, jasonwmore.com. And uh, I welcome uh, um, correspondence and criticism and dialogue and everything else, because I think we're at this moment where we need to think through new ways of politics, new ways of imagining the world. And this is the moment to do it. No doubt about it. Thanks again, Jason. Thanks, listeners. As always, speak to you next week. 